folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. It's Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, and one of many hotbeds uh, where election fever has taken hold. Uh, we'll talk about that a lot on our program today from various angles. Uh, um, we'll talk about how the issue of ending birthright citizenship and the the uh, asylum-seeking caravan is affecting the election. We've got all that to cover, but first, um, I want to take a second again to recognize the stations around the country that rebroadcast this program. Uh, KHOI 89.1 in Ames, KICI in Iowa City, and KPIP and WHIV in Missouri and New Orleans, respectively. Okay, so welcoming to the program here, um, Dan Kim. Dan Kim is with uh, the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit. And uh, this is an annual event that has gone from being an Iowa event to an international event. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Ed. Great to be with you again. Yeah, you are probably working like crazy right now, because I know this event's coming up on what on November 17th. Yes, I am, and I wish I could clone myself. But it's, it's a great <laughs> event, and we want to have everybody participate and uh, sign up if you hear this message today. Again, the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit started in Des Moines, started by Ying Sa, who had also founded Community CPA and Associates. But I know there was uh, an event in China recently, correct? Yes, the International China took place. And we also took um, the annual event outside of Iowa to Illinois as well in July. Okay. So how did those go? How, how did the national event? Yeah, and what was again? I, I know that the the summit here in Iowa has drawn tremendous attention uh, right. because there are so many people who want to do their own thing when it comes to business. They they want to own their own business. They want to be in control of their own economic destiny, and the services provided at the Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit are really helpful for that. And again, not just for the immigrant community, but there are a lot of issues. Uh, that are specific to people who are fairly new to new to the U.S. and uh, you know issues that might not get addressed at a standard business conference, but that you guys cover right. you know with great depth. And I think that's 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 unique. But it's also I think really important to point out that that you don't have to be a recent immigrant. In my case, a third gener or second generation Irish immigrant, still find the conferences Absolutely. very very valuable. So mm -hmm. we, we we like to define immigrant entrepreneurs. Um, as those who are immigrant to the idea of entrepreneurship. So uh -huh. we have redefined that. We want to make this event uh, inclusive, and everybody who is in the business or wanting to start a new business can attend. Right, very good. And again, I, you know, I've, I, I've been an entrepreneur myself uh, in various mm -hmm. ways through both uh, the private sector and the nonprofit sector. And uh, I've often just kind of gone it on my own <laughs> and learned as I learned as I learned as I go, and that's um, that works okay. But it's not bad to have some people with experience Absolutely. and uh, and tools that can help advise you on how to get those things started and avoid some mistakes. Especially, I think if you're right. looking at something that requires a certain level of capital investment. I mean, you don't want to lay down a bunch of money and find find out that you took a wrong turn. Definitely, and we have 21 different workshops. Um, uh, taught in English and Spanish, and um, business experts who has been in business for more than 10-plus years mm. and have really shown that they 
um, can help uh, small business avoid legal issues, um, increase their uh, market share in um, doing different marketings and the social media, um, how to get themselves financed. And so we have a lot of business experts um, participate year after year and volunteer their time to make this available to the public. And so we want to make sure everybody utilizes this, this tool and this gathering because we're expecting over a thousand entrepreneurs from not only the Midwest like we have had in the past, but we have people coming from California, from Massachusetts, from Maryland. And so we are definitely um, having a lot more diverse uh, crowd than before as far as geographical attendance. So uh, it's an exciting time for yeah. Immigrant Entrepreneur Summit. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, what, what do people have to know in order to uh, attend the event? Yes. Yeah, so they, they can just register at our website www.iesusa.org, and that's www.iesusa.org. And so you can register right there and then. And if you have any questions, you can also email me at dan at communitycpa.com or call me at my cell phone, 515-720-5872. Okay. I am curious, Dan, one quick question here. How was a conference about how to how to do well in a capitalist economy received in communist china how did that how did that go yeah i mean it it was a challenge and it, you know there is a lot of tension between the the two nations so um it was there were a, a lot of obstacles but we were just very happy to be able to get through it and do it and uh, get the support from um Ambassador Brand said himself. So uh, we thought that went very well, and we we hope to um, do it again, maybe in a different country, yeah, like okay. Mexico, or you know. And so we want to be there where we have a strong relationship um, as far as the U.S. is concerned, so we can bring right. business into this country. Yes. And did I know the Brandstead connection certainly helped, and I know I know Ying Sao also has connections to China. But did you find that the Chinese government was uh, receptive, and that uh, people were were interested in the uh, and, and and they found the concepts and and uh, I can't really relevant? speak for the government, but I can definitely tell that there were a lot of um, businesses. Chinese businesses that were interested in attending and supporting the event and Good. learning about how to do business in the U.S. and avoid any legal issues along the way. Good. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. well very good. Uh, Dan, good luck. And again, if people want to learn more about the event, where do they go? It's www.iesusa.org. Great. And uh, it's always great to be here and join you, join you, Ed. Yeah. Thanks for calling in. Absolutely. All right, folks, uh, we're going to run to a quick quick break here. And uh, when we come back, uh, Joseph Glazebrook is going to join us. He's an attorney who uh, works here in uh, central Iowa uh, and also a very astute follower of all things judicial, including the conversation about whether or not President Trump has the authority to end birthright citizenship, uh, essentially in 
contradiction to what most people think the 14th Amendment is trying to say and what the Supreme Court uh, in, in latter years has affirmed. That'll be an interesting conversation. And we, I also want to talk about with Joseph about how it affects, how it's, uh, how it's, uh, how it's um, networking with the intense interest in the upcoming uh, election. We'll be back in a couple minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Times are tough. And most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms, and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York, and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. Hey, welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here. As we're got a lot of conversation today about the election, it's a, a pretty important one, no matter who you ask. And uh, one person I'd love to get an opinion from on it is Joseph Glazebrook. He's a attorney here in Des Moines, and he's on the phone to join us uh, in the midst of um, keeping pretty busy at uh, voter registration and get out the vote efforts. Uh, Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. 
the president getting lots of criticism for his proposal to end birthright citizenship, not just from from the usual suspects on the political left, but from Paul Ryan and conservative columnists and other people who tend to value the Constitution. Um, of course, there are the detractors on the other side who agree with him. Fox, for, Fox News, for example, claiming that uh, the 14th Amendment has really has merely been misinterpreted and that we're you know, we're not understanding what it means to be naturalized. Uh, that's that's a that's a component uh, of the uh, of the Fourteenth Amendment. Well, what's your What's your take on this from your you know your expert view within the uh, in the uh, legal world? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, let me just say that it's really important for everybody to get out there and vote. I'll answer your question about the immigration thing uh, in a second, but. Um, if, if, if you're hearing this uh, and you haven't voted yet, for God's sakes, get out there and vote. And if you have voted, you know, volunteer uh, at your local field office or for a candidate that you like. Uh, you know, some people like certain candidates and other people like other candidates. Just pick one that you like and get out there and work for them. Um, it's a really important election, and we, we need everybody uh, on board for this one. Okay. Now, that being said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great plug. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so that being said, in the immigration context, um, uh, f- first of all, let's let's start out with a, a simple uh, idea. Okay, everybody other than Native Americans who were born here uh, and who were here for a long time, um, other than, than those folks, everybody who came to this country in the beginning was an immigrant. This is a nation of immigrants. The Statue of Liberty says, give us your, your tired, your sick, etc., Okay, so the idea that um, there are some people who are here um, and, and they get to be here, and then there are other people who come here and they don't get to be here, that's an unusual premise to begin any conversation. But let's take a look at what the actual um, language is. Um, so the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War. Um, it was passed to um, ensure that people, uh, slaves in particular, former slaves, were um, uh, citizens, were given full equal rights under the law, were given full due process under the law. And in particular, this section about birthright citizenship came up um, to ensure that the children of slaves would be considered citizens merely because they were born in this country. Right. And so um, it's not controversial. The Constitution is very clear. It says if you're uh, born uh, in this country, on our soil, you're a citizen. It's, but the, it's really but that's, not that hard. But that's one uh, angle that the folks supporting President Trump argue, that the amendment was specifically intended to expedite the incorporation of the children of, US, of, of slaves into, into, into full, uh, full citizenship status. And so it, they're, they're claiming that that was a, spe- a special case. That's why the amendment was established. The the folks who established it didn't conceive of the immigration problem we have today with the uh, as as Trump calls it the invasion of people coming coming from Mexico. Uh, so they argue that it's not relevant to the current conversation. No, it's a complete. It's a ridiculous argument, and it's not even. I mean, there's no serious legal scholar that agrees with that position. I mean, every single time the Supreme Court has considered this issue, it's, it hasn't even been close. Let me just read you the language of the amendment. It says, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. So, you know, just kind of, just kind of break that down. All persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. It is not ambiguous at all. If the framers of that amendment wanted to limit it to the, the children of, of slaves, 
they could have used language that was a lot less broad. Yeah. They wanted to be clear about what the American dream was for everybody. And they said all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States, period. And again, there is there's no real debate about this. I mean, in my opinion, Trump is doing this to just, you know, gin up the base of his party who are racist and, and want something to yeah, get upset about. But there's no realistic, no plausible legal argument so, that what Trump says is right, both in terms of interpreting the 14th Amendment and in terms of the idea, the crazy idea that a president can simply override a constitutional provision with an executive order. That's just as crazy. Now, Joseph, I, I listened to Rush Limbaugh so that you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, the argument that Limbaugh put forward, and I'm sure he's got this, this set of talking points from his friends at Fox News or somewhere else, is that uh, the language in the 14th Amendment that says, again, all persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. The argument there is that, you know, folks who were born here because their parents came illegally aren't subject to the jurisdiction thereof because they, because they, they were never legal in the first place. I think it's a pretty bizarre argument, but that's, that's one that's being put out there. It's a bizarre argument because the Trump administration themselves are subjecting all of these people to their jurisdiction. Jurisdiction means the ability, the legal authority for a court to hear a case. And every time the Trump administration tries to deport an immigrant, they're subjecting that immigrant to the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States. So to argue that somebody who's here illegally is not subject to the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States means that they're not subject to deportation. So you can't have it both ways. If you want to deport people, fine, but that you're admitting what I think is obviously the case, that if you're here, you're subject to the jurisdiction of the country. Right. Also, if, if, if a young person who came here um, without papers committed a crime, they would be subject to the criminal courts, regardless of their citizenship status. If a young person who came here and wanted to get married and then got a divorce, uh, they would be able to get a family court to give them a divorce. Everybody in this country, regardless of their, their immigration status, is subject to the jurisdiction of the courts here because we want it that way. We want to make sure our courts have jurisdiction over everybody so that we can sort out all of the problems in society. So do you think what Trump's doing is, is primarily political, primarily a, a way to try to counteract the intense interest in the election on the Democratic side of the scale to get his Republican base uh, fired up and, and participating? I'll give you one better. I, I don't think it's primarily about that. I think it's exclusively about that. Mm. Again, there is n there's literally no cognizable legal argument behind his words. It is purely a political stunt. It is it, it's it would be like claiming uh, something that you know. It, it would be like if Obama claimed that he had the power without Congress to adopt universal health care. Well, that might inspire liberals, but it, right. it would be completely unlawful. And the same thing is true here with yeah. Trump. Yeah, and it looks like, again, Trump is no, no stranger to uh, lying to um, make his point. And uh, yeah, I would say that the, the birthright, the ending birthright citizenship uh, issue is, is – I'm not sure we would have been hearing about this if it wasn't for the, what, five, six, seven thousand uh, you know, Central Americans who are currently heading this way as part of the uh, caravan who are seeking asylum. But most of what Trump's been saying about that is also being pretty easily debunked by anybody who has any knowledge about the matter at all. So this is just kind of in keeping with that whole <laughs> whole approach to uh, to playing very loose with the truth. 
But again, again, like you said, probably not just partially, but exclusively in in order to try to uh, drum up support. But you know, even, even though that may be what he's doing, he's even finding opposition among Republicans. Like like you know, House Speaker Paul Ryan says Trump's wrong on the birthright issue. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to defend that. And I think in a in inadvertent moment of, of uh, clarity um, and truth from him, who we usually don't expect that from Paul Ryan, but uh, I, I think he admitted what was really going on and, and acknowledged that it's a crazy idea. You know, and it would be nice to see others do the same because, again, it's it's complete fabrication of an issue, uh, just the same as sending the military to the border. I mean, you know, U.S. law prevents the U.S. military from engaging in law enforcement activities within the country, so they can't arrest, you know, immigrants. They can't um, detain immigrants. They can't do anything like that. Um, all they're doing is just making a show of force. They're just standing there, basically, uh, filling out paperwork. It's a fabricated issue, and it'd be nice to hear other Republicans um, uh, call them out on it, because, you know, even if you agree with somebody politically, you should be able to call them out when they don't uh, follow basic um precepts of what is true and what is not true. Do you know if anyone has challenged Governor Iowa Governor Reynolds or any of Iowa's Republican congressional members, Grassley, Ernst, Young, Bloom, uh, King, anybody, has anybody challenged any of them to weigh in on this issue? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I, I think that uh, some, I think um, some people have called for Kim Reynolds to uh, drop Steve King from her campaign, which right. is crazy that he's even there. The idea that somebody running for governor would have a white supremacist as their campaign chair is crazy. But um, other than that, I don't know of any specific people uh, calling out uh, these folks in terms of the false claims about immigration. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, it's possible that it may actually backfire. I mean, we have, uh, I don't remember the numbers now, but we have more Latinos registered to vote than ever before um, in, in Iowa, certainly, but also across the country. And so perhaps this might have the opposite effect. Is that possible? I, I hope so. I think so. Um, certainly we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm among Latinos. And I think that it's important to know that there's a ton of people who aren't um, a member of a minority population who nonetheless uh, find it so offensive what the Trump administration and local Republican officials are doing that they are more motivated to vote to protect their brothers and sisters in other communities. I think that um, we underestimate how many people um, from various different backgrounds are ready to stand up and, and come out for the defense of everybody in our society, especially the most vulnerable. One last quick question, uh, Joseph, again, looking ahead. What will happen? Uh, I mean, and maybe this will be affected by what happens on, on Election Day tomorrow, but what will happen when the uh, migrant caravan, the caravan of asylum seekers, as I prefer to call it, reaches the U.S. border? What do you, what do you see the showdown looking like when that happens? Yeah, I mean, like I said, or as I implied earlier, it's not really an issue. Um, what's going to happen is maybe a certain percentage of them will make it all the way. They're still a 1,000 miles away. Uh, but let's say 20 or 30% make it, so we have a few hundred people at the border. They'll be uh, allowed to apply for asylum. Many of them will be uh, – they have this initial proceeding where they determine whether their claims are sort of on their face viable. And if, if so, they'll be given a court date. Uh, to have a determination one way or the other. Um, some will be denied entry if their claims are just not viable on their face. 
Uh, And others will be given a hearing, and they'll either be granted asylum, which means they get a a visa to stay here, or they will be deported. It's not a big deal. It's what we do all the time. Right, and to put it in perspective, back in April, uh, 401 uh, uh, immigrants requested asylum legally. They went through the legal process at the border when they arrived, and 93% passed an initial test where they had to establish a credible fear of returning to their home country. So, yeah. And for what it's worth, Ed, real quick, um, when people are given a court date in an asylum case, um, something like 97% of them show up for court. That is a higher percentage of people showing up for court who are non-citizens than our citizens show up to court in criminal cases. So for those wondering about whether these people are just going to duck into the shadows and not show up for court, they show up for court. The statistics are there. The president is lying. Right. Well, the president lying. That's, uh, That's become pretty standard fare. Uh, Joseph, thanks. (laughs) Joseph, thank you so much for joining us, Uh, folks. We've been talking with Joseph Blaisbrook, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to visit. We know you're pretty busy. Thanks, Ed. Uh, Good luck out there, and and get out there and vote if you haven't. Oh, yeah. Yep, great advice. Okay, we'll be back in a few minutes, folks, uh, with more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, broadcasting from the studios of La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines. All right, so um, later in the program, Christine Nobis joining us to talk uh, about her take on the upcoming election as the uh, founder of Indigenous Iowa, who also works uh, nationally with um, with the growing power of uh, the Native community uh, on so many different fronts, so many different issues. But uh, first, I want to give you my own take on a couple things here. Okay, so um, I'm really glad. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of corporate media. No. But uh, sometimes they have some really good stuff. <laughs> Once in a while, USA Today, I think, um, did democracy a service by pointing out just how important uh, the election is in terms of what happens in the next census. Uh, you know, Republicans got this. Um, Back in 2010, well, before that, they, they had a, a committee in place that, uh, that worked really hard to make sure that key legislative districts uh, went their way so that they could control what happened with redistricting. Now, uh, district ma- uh, the districting process, the redistricting process works different in states across the country. Um, and again, not to be too much of a shameless booster about stuff in Iowa. We have plenty of flaws as well. Just ask my friends in New Orleans what, what we're doing to the Gulf of Mexico with our nitrate and, uh, and, uh, and soil erosion problem. But when it comes to redistricting, Iowa gets it right. We have a system here that is uh, pretty much flawless. Now, I'm surprised that uh, Republicans haven't tried to change it. <laughs> uh, and, and not that Republicans are the only ones who do gerrymandering. But in Iowa, uh, the fairness of the system has – I mean, right now we have, a, we have a pretty red state. But overall, Iowa has been what some call purple, where it kind of fluctuates back and forth uh, – where you can have, you can have, well, you have you have a situation where you've got a senator Grassley, very conservative, and a senator Tom Harkin. Again, Harkin has since retired. We now have two Grassleys, uh, <laughs> well, Grassley and Ernst. Um, 
But overall, the system has worked pretty well for assuring boundaries that are fair and representative of the population. The way it works here is that uh, the nonpartisan legislative services agency uh, starts in one corner of the state. You pick your corner, and they work their way across, making sure they respect uh, urban boundaries, uh, county boundaries, uh, and and just just basically looking at how the population is sitting and dividing up the map accordingly. It works pretty well. Uh, and then if uh, the legislature doesn't like the plan, they vote it up or down. They can't change it. They can't mess with it. They can't tweak it. They can't gerrymander it. They vote it up or down, and the services agency comes back with plan two. They vote that up and down. Uh, the legislature votes that up or down. And then if they don't like that one, if they vote it down, it goes to the courts. And, again, Iowa's court system has been reasonably fair as well. We don't have elections for justices. Bad system. When justices have to um, you know, have to campaign, have to take donations to get on the ballot or to, to win their election, it just, it, it just politicizes the entire judiciary in a way that you don't want. So, again, I think the Iowa system is good. Um, but this, uh, this Republican strategy over 10 years ago – targeted states where they thought they had a chance of stacking uh, the legislative chambers, you know, having enough Republicans in both chambers to have the majority needed to create maps, districting maps, that were extremely uh, uh, balance, unbalanced and very biased. And if you look at some of these maps, you're thinking, what the heck is going on here, where you've got a little thin you know, line connecting one area. For example, you take a chunk out of a very heavy, heavily Democratic area and then follow a road or something out to a, you know, a, a much more uh, Republican area, and suddenly you have a district that even though you've got strong Democratic presence in one part of it, they can't win. Democrats can't win. And then you take that large Democratic community, saying that saying an urban center, and you divide it, you know, in, in three or four ways in which each each Democratic portion is 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 a is a overrun by the Republican majority now connected to it, and and you and you you basically you know cut a whole bunch of people out of the process, and so um, Democrats get this this year. In fact, um, Eric Holder, you know the former uh, Obama Attorney General, he's heading up something called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and this is a. Uh, this is a kind of a coordinated effort to um, to win a more favorable playing field for Democrats um, for the 2020 census. So I don't know all the details of where they're targeting. Um, that'll probably come out after the election. Uh, but interestingly, there's no comparable group. There's no comparable group on the Republican side. Republicans who did this um, with great finesse and success back in before the last census – Aren't doing it this time. Well, maybe they are, but we're not aware of it. Uh, at least, I, at least the information I have isn't aware of it. Uh, if I'm missing it, let me know. But um, if I'm missing it, the USA Today is also missing it. <laughs> so, um, it, but the bottom line is that uh, people are understanding just how important legislative races are because it's the legislature that determines not just how the legislative map looks within that state, but how the congressional map looks, and. Again, this is not this is this is very very important. And to be fair, it's not only Republicans who commit the sin of gerrymandering. Uh, it is primarily at the state level. But I will say this: in Iowa, we have one county in particular, Polk County, uh, 
Iowa's largest county where Des Moines is. Polk County does gerrymander because the district maps only apply to congressional uh, districts and state House and Senate districts. At the county level, if you've got a county where you've got um, where, where, where supervisors are elected by districts, then the majority on the board determine what those maps look like. And so, yeah, we've we've seen some gerrymandering here in Iowa, but only at the uh, only at the county level. And as far as I know, only in Polk County because other other counties have a different different system. But anyway, um, there are four states right now: Colorado. Michigan, Missouri, and Utah that are all uh, working to redistrict, um, to, to, have a, to, to set up a different system of redistricting. They have uh, n- initiatives on the ballot, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens because it's hard to argue against this. It's hard to argue that this is working really well. In fact, there are court challenges at the federal level. There are court challenges at the uh, state level. Uh, uh, and even one, one court, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Earlier this year, struck down a map that Republicans had drawn, uh, had drawn, uh, and uh, and 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 so you know there are more and more of these challenges likely to happen because the bottom line is elections aren't fair and equal when you've got a map that's been drawn based on partisan bias. Okay, let me take a quick second to thank some of our other. Business partners here in the Des Moines Metro, thanks to catering by Sid. Sid Cohn uses a lot of local and fresh ingredients uh, during the uh, growing season, and even some during when, when we're not growing stuff, uh, as, as, as is about to happen with a heavy freeze hitting here. Uh, she's also, every one of her arrangements is custom-made, so give Catering by Sid a shot. That's Catering by CYD, Sid Cohn. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating uh, large and small critters for over 30 years. Give her a shout. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic with Dr. Kim Holding. And finally, thanks again to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. Also a great place for breakfast, lunch, supper, and they've got a catering service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, we're going to go to our phone line and welcome Christine Nobis to the show. Christine is with uh, Indigenous Iowa and has been uh, paying close attention to the election. I mean, who hasn't? But uh, we've seen some very interesting um, uh, situations arise relevant to the Indigenous vote. That's, again, going to be an important part of what happens in many states. Uh, Christine, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. One problem I'm aware of is uh, is in North Dakota, where the um, the new voter ID law requires a specific house number, you know, number on your home to match uh, other records, and that doesn't really work well. For example, at Standing Rock, where the um, you know the, uh, the 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 structure of streets and the numbering of homes is it just doesn't match with that system. Yeah, because they have P.O. boxes. Yeah, or in some cases, yeah. it's, a, I mean, I'm, my, my impression is in some cases, it's, yeah, third house down on the left. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very casual. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what, what is your thought well, on that? Well, is that, uh, again, you have to suspect that this, this change to the voter law was put in place specifically to try to uh, disenfranchise uh, 
you know, native voters yeah. in North Dakota. I mean, I think so. I think most of this stuff is done to disenfranchise people. I mean, gerrymandering is a, is a real thing. ID requirements and all these restrictions that are put on people is a very real thing. The fact remains that there has been little to no, I mean, uh, actual voter fraud in the past, I mean, I don't know, 30 years. I think there's been like, I don't know if it's 30 years, I can't quite remember, but there's been like 32 very minor incidences yeah. that have been recorded. Right. And I mean, it's, it's unbelievable compared to like the 800 million times people have voted or something like that. Right. So um, it's kind of ridiculous. But Standing Rock uh, is, you know, the people are standing up and I think that they have, um, they have increased their early voting uh, by up to 400% because wow. of this issue. Yeah. So it's yeah, a er- really cool thing. Early voting is off the charts. Yeah, uh, in Texas, too. It's really exciting. Um, People are very, very uh, keen to um, make a difference, I think, since um, uh, the orange person got voted in. (laughs) The orange person. (laughs) That's a... That's, a, that's an interesting way to describe him, yes. Um, I try not to say his name. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's, that's a polite one compared to some of the names I've heard in lieu of uh, his name. Uh, yes. So, uh, you know, and again, the, uh, the discrimination in North Dakota, again, is largely affecting, uh, the one we're talking about at least, is largely affecting Native communities in very rural areas. But a lot of the disenfranchisement is occurring in urban areas, again, where you've got large minority populations. Uh, there's, you know, a story a story from um, from Atlanta, Georgia, where again they've closed so many polling places that, and again, the number of people who are voting early is up so high that you've got folks waiting for as much as two hours to get in and vote. Yeah, and they've actually even like taken all polling places out. I think in one of those southern areas, yeah. and I think they have to go like it's like an hour bus ride away or some ridiculous. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really about disenfranchisement. It truly is, yeah. um, and and these people are definitely doing everything they can. Yeah, and they call, to, uh, they're calling them voting centers instead of polling places. Again, you know, where more people have to go, and so you've got a, a more crowded, chaotic situation. Um, and again, often at places where people who don't have uh, access to vehicles or or who have a car like mine uh, <laughs> that you can't rely on. Uh, they they, yeah. they they can't get to those places, and it's just um, no. and it's not like there isn't money to make this happen. Look how much money goes into um, people running for candidacy, right? Oh so, gosh, incredible! Like obscene. Yeah, uh, yeah. Didn't JD Shulton just raise nine hundred k? Yeah, the past? I mean that's a good thing. I'm glad. Yeah, but that's <laughs> crazy. He, out, he he definitely outdid Steve King, um, and that's a good thing. But let's just be realistic about that. Like that's a lot of money. Yeah. So like for a race. It's a shame so anybody think, has to do that. You know. Right. Yeah. This money should be going into like infrastructure for voting, so people can actually vote. Yeah. We shouldn't actually be decreasing the ability for people to vote. Well, and, and their arguments. But um, I mean. <clears throat> Sorry, go on. Look, I said some of the arguments are well, you know, there are, there are more people who are voting early, so we don't need as many people at these polling places, or we're having a hard time finding poll workers. I have a hard time imagining that's true. You know, but, <laughs> I, but here, I, here's the funny thing, Christine. Even in cities like Chicago, which is emphatically Democratic, or Los Angeles, we're seeing these things happen. That that's what that's what confuses me. Why why are we seeing more voter disenfranchisement in largely Democratic communities where, you know, you, you'd expect that that vote is going to go the way of the Democrats. 
You know, to be truthful, I, I, I don't really consider myself a fan of either Republican or Democratic parties. Um, I, I think that in the end, um, disenfranchising um, people of color uh, and the uh, lower lower middle cr- class is, is, is um, a, a systematic issue. Um, it's actually why uh, I, I, I started this project recently called the uh, Riverland Native Voter Project. And it's about getting uh, indigenous people to vote um, regardless of who they vote for, um, you know, based upon like different, a different set of rules or ideologies, uh, based on like ancestral and ecological boundaries rather than state and, uh, precinct boundaries. And so, um, I just, I just, I just want like indigenous people to infiltrate the system, um, vote, uh, and make a difference and, and, and do good things for our people because, um, that's basically the way I look at it. We can't trust. Um, a system that has, for 500 years, basically oppressed us right. and caused a massive genocide and, and serious issues within our communities. Um, I'd like to see a real dismantling of this system. It's corrupt. It doesn't make sense to me that there's two senators per state, um, considering population differences. Um, a lot of this stuff is not okay. Like, the, the Constitution is a, is a document that is meant to be, you know, is meant to be changed according to what's going on with the country, and it's not. It's being used to basically um, uh, to promote stagnated, uh, outdated um, ideas that are entrenched in racism and colonialism. And um, it's perpetuating a lot, a lot, a lot of oppression. And it needs to stop. So do you, do you see a greater percentage of uh, Native Americans turning out in this election? I do. I see uh, this year was the, 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 the greatest uh, turnout we've ever had for people running for office. Um, and in particular, uh, Indigenous women. And, and this year, uh, like I just said, uh, Standing Rock uh, just increased their, um, their uh, voting uh, before, before the, the day uh, by 400%. So, I mean, I do think that uh, Native people are starting to come around, uh, mm. definitely, to this idea that we need to be, um, we need to take part in this, uh, unfortunate system, um, so that we can infiltrate it and change it. I, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this. This is an off-the-cuff question, but how how many uh, Native Americans hold positions in state legislatures across the country? Do you have any idea? I I don't know. It's not very many. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I think there's about like I would probably say at the moment I can think of off the top of my head. Um, four or five. Okay. Um, I know there's a Hawaiian woman. Uh, there is a woman in Arizona, I believe. Um, and and then of course, like I like, to, I don't like to separate like indigeneity based upon like who's from Turtle Island and who's not. Like you know, because frankly, uh, borders. Uh, well, border imperialism is something that I'm trying to. I would like to overcome. And so you know, people that are of Latinx descent are indigenous. You right. know. And so, like, there's, of course, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name all of a sudden, um, the woman in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, Alexandra de Cortez. Yes, yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. Um, so let's, we, have to, we have to start um, crossing, um, what the, you know, these imperialist borders of, um, uh, and, and, like, not just, not just in terms of, like, uh, geo- not just geologically, but, like, you know, racially. We have to like abolish these borders and like understand that these people are also indigenous. Yeah. Hey, um, we're taking take a quick look at what's happening in Louisiana. Uh, Jefferson Parish is um, uh, a very um, 
It's a very high minority population, 47%, only 40%, sorry, 40%, 47% is non-white. There we go. And um, officials there shut down 23 polling locations. That was back in 2016. Uh, that's the most that, uh, if you look at all the Louisiana parishes, that's the largest percentage that got shut down. And that forced um, voters, to, again, to go elsewhere. Now, um, Jefferson, Parish official, Jefferson Parish, Parish officials said they also closed all but two of the 23 sites because uh, they could not afford to make them accessible to voters with disabilities. So, it, it you know, it just seems like... Uh, Again, this is an example of a very poor community, a very high percentage minority, and they've always got a reason why they need to do this, but it just seems, I mean, that seems particularly weak. We couldn't make it accessible to people with disabilities, so we basically made it even harder for people with disabilities and other poor people to vote. I mean, who who can't see through that? Is some, Something's wrong with that. Yeah, they called it vote flipping, right? Or yeah, something. I think so. I- I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that. That is highly disturbing. Because people vote either Democrat or Republican. Not necessarily, you know, for... Well, I mean, there are people that vote for candidates, but in my opinion, this is a, a high, this is a two-party country. And so people generally are voting for, like, the... Um, the a budget put forth or the ethics and morals of a particular uh, party. And so to vote, like, say, Democrat, and then to have that flip right on you and find out you voted Republican, it must be seriously disturbing. Because I would, I mean, not that I necessarily believe in this system, but I would vote Democrat any day before I voted Republican. Yeah. And by the way, I can't vote because I'm Canadian. <laughs> right, so okay. I want everybody to know that. <laughs> <laughs> right, or we'd have to send you back to your, send you back across the border. Right. It's the same thing there, though. Yeah. Canada is, is faced with the, the exact same issues. Although you do have multiple parties, and we, we don't well, basically have a system. No, I mean, we still yet. have really just two, though, that kind of <laughs> yeah. okay. run the show. Yeah. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, that that's, I don't know. I, I do think there's a lot of fraud going on, uh, and not necessarily from the streets, obviously. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely gerrymandering that's, that's creating all this havoc. Yeah. Well, that's a big part of it. Um, so, again, thanks, uh, thanks, Christine, for joining us on the show. Thank you. We've been talking, folks, with Christine Nobis with Indigenous Iowa. And if anybody hasn't got the message yet, uh, the election is really, really important. Now, some of you will be listening to this program after the election when it gets rebroadcast on uh, KHOI or KPIP or WHIV or KICI. But if uh, so, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think what I think whatever happens on Tuesday will be historic, uh, and um, will have a huge impact on what happens going forward, especially with the upcoming uh, you know census and the redistricting that follows the uh, 2020 census. So um, I, I again, as uh, Joseph said earlier in the show, please take time to vote. It's uh, really really important. And again, if you're listening on our community-owned station, stay tuned. We have another segment coming up for you. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to The Conversation, folks. This is Ed Fallon with you, broadcasting on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. All right, so gambling has become a major interest in many parts of the country. Uh, Iowa actually has 
as many or more types of gambling here than anywhere. <laughs> uh, dogs, horses, casinos, riverboats, um, all that sort of thing. The, lot, the lottery, of course. You know, I, and I, I've never, as a lawmaker, I was never in support of expanding gambling. But I was always very empathetic to the Native communities that, you know, for so long had seen so much poverty and so much discrimination that found a way to, um, to improve uh, their situation dramatically with the help of a casino. So, I, I, you know, I make an exception in terms of how I feel about gambling when it comes to the Native communities that, that want a casino. Now, a very interesting situation is occurring in, um, in uh, western Iowa, uh, in, next, to Count, next to Council Bluffs, which is, again, basically a suburb of Omaha, and uh, the town of Carter Lake, which is next to Council Bluffs, again, part of the greater Omaha metropolitan area. Carter Lake is interesting because, you know, you think of the western boundary of Iowa, at least up as far as Sioux City, as being the Missouri River. Well, that, has, that is the case almost exclusively, except where the Missouri River changed course after statehood back in, I think, 1870s. And so we have this little enclave uh, on the other side of the Missouri River that is nonetheless part of Iowa. And this is important because uh, that land is historically part of the Ponca Nation. And uh, back in 99, 1999, the Ponca tribe intended to, you know, build a health center there. And um, yet there were concerns by the casino industry that they might be planning to build a casino. Now, the casino industry in Council Bluffs is a huge deal. There are three casinos. They're massive. In, in, in 2017, they earned profits of about $420 million. That's just profits, $420 million. They also paid about $94 million in state and local taxes, and that included $4 million directly to the city of Council Bluffs. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, they're a huge interest. <laughs> So, uh, in 2002, an, an attorney who represented the Ponca tribe supposedly um, put together a pledge that said the site would not be used for gambling. And the tribe now argues that the attorney wasn't authorized to approve such an agreement. I, that's the level of detail I don't, I don't know how to get into. Although I will say that if, um, if the agreement was legit and the tribe went back on it, that would be nothing new in terms of affairs between natives and and uh, and the set and settlers uh, but again most of the uh, most most of what's involved going back on an agreement has been on the uh, settler side uh, there are so many treaties uh, that have been broken by by the US government that's another conversation so anyway um the Ponca tribe went ahead and just this past week uh, announced the official opening of the Prairie Flower Casino. It's a small casino. Very small compared to the big ones just a few miles away. And, um, you know, the, interestingly, the state of Iowa and the state of Nebraska are suing and continuing to sue. And, and again, Iowa Democratic Attorney General Tom Miller is one leading the charge against the tribes. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, let's admit it, this is all about money. 
the state is on the hook. The state gets $94 million. The state of Iowa gets $94 million a year from these three casinos alone. The state is addicted to gambling. And the state doesn't want any competition from a tribal-owned casino that, because it is is operated by a sovereign nation, does not have to pay taxes. That's the crux of it. That's regarded as an unfair advantage. Um, Now, my sense is if there are three casinos, large ones, in the Council Bluffs Omaha area, the market could probably involve another one. And and besides, if you are if you are amenable to the free market, then why, why is the state coming in and trying to suppress this casino? And, you know, I, I hear the argument, well, it's unfair that they don't pay taxes. Well, again, they are a sovereign nation. And they are a nation that has been beaten down badly uh, for decades. They were, the, they were the victims of attempted genocide. Heck, if we can give them one small break by letting them have a casino that, that doesn't have to pay taxes... I'm okay with that. I'm entirely okay. What I'm not okay with is the state of Iowa and the state of Nebraska wasting taxpayer money suing them. That is wrong. And yet it continues. Because even though the casino was opened, the uh, two states, their attorney generals, are continuing to fight. So um, I love what uh, Larry Wright Jr., the uh, chairman of the Ponca tribe, had to say about this. He said... Um, well, he pointed out that the Ponca tribe was forcibly removed from Nebraska in the 19th century, lost its federally recognized tribal status in 1966, and saw much of its land slip away because um, its influence had, had, um, had, had, you know, had declined. So um, the tribal chairman again says, quote, We have persevered. We are the seeds of resistance of our ancestors. We are survivors and continue to grow stronger every day. Wright pointed out that that the casino would help provide economic stability for future future generations, pumping cash into health care programs, education, and cultural activities for the tribe's 4,200 members. So, uh, you know, we'll see where this goes, but um, the Iowa Iowa and Nebraska officials continue to argue against it. Uh, They continue to fight it. Uh, I, I think the smart money of this, in this case, is on the tribe. Again, we've seen a resurgence of, um, of, of pride, of cultural identity, of uh, economic uh, vitality. Uh, you're not just in the, with the Ponca tribe, but with Native nations across the country. And, um, and there's a lot of empathy from those descended from the original European settlers. There's a lot of empathy and a sense of fairness that what, you know, what, what they are trying to accomplish um, is reasonable. And again, this is coming from somebody, me, who's not a big fan of gambling. My motto when it comes to the lottery is, if you don't play, you can't lose. I've never bought a lottery ticket. I've never put a penny or, or a quarter or whatever token you use into a slot machine, and I probably never will. But as a matter of fairness and as, as a matter partially of reparations, of making up for all the harm and all the terrible things we did to Native communities across the country over the decades over the centuries. This is just a small thing we can do to allow them to begin to continue to continue their efforts to um, achieve a viable future. And again, as the, as the chairman said, a lot of this money from this new casino is going to go into healthcare, education, cultural activities, things that are, are critically important to the community. So um, we'll see where this goes. 
uh, again, I don't doubt that um, that uh, the the, the taxpayer-financed attorney generals for uh, attorneys general for both states, Iowa and Nebraska, will continue to fight. And I think it's, it is, there's some irony there too, isn't there? That somehow they can justify using taxpayer money to sue a indigenous tribe um, on the grounds that they you know, they, they, that they aren't paying taxes. I, I find some irony to that. Anyway, um, we'll see where this goes. We'll keep you posted. Um, it's back in the courts. In the meantime, Prairie, Club, Prairie Flower Casino is open. If you are inclined to play the slots <laughs> or blackjack or whatever else you're inclined to do, uh, why don't you go there instead of one of the three big ones that the state somehow has no trouble with. So switching gears here because it is now after the election and we can talk a little bit about what happened on Tuesday. And I'm, you know, okay, so nationally, great news that Democrats gained control of the U.S. House. Uh, if for no other reason than to achieve some balance, okay? Uh, that, that's, not a, that's not intended as a partisan observation. It's intended as... Oh, uh, a, an admission that government seems to work better these days when there's some checks and balances in place. So, yes, the House now a check against uh, the Republican-controlled Senate and the Republican administration of Donald Trump. Not a bad thing for democracy and for America. So uh, just to talk a little bit about Iowa, I know Iowa will soon become the epicenter of conversations about politics because we're expecting an inundation of Democratic candidates running for president here. That's already begun, actually. And now that the midterms are behind us, I think that trickle will become a flood. But in terms of, um, you know, Iowa is probably a good place to examine what happened in the uh, midterm election because um, we went from having uh, three Republican congressional districts and one Democratic district to three Democrat and one Republican district. And uh, that happened despite the very, very well-funded candidate for governor, Fred Hubble, who I believe, well, the, the full reckoning's not in, but it'll be close to $20 million that he spent uh, losing a campaign for governor. And there's going to be lots of, uh, lots of uh, analysis of this uh, to come, but one really, really important thing to point out is that uh, Hubble only won seven, I think, seven or eight Iowa counties. Uh, there are 99 counties in Iowa, so he lost almost all of the other ones. He lost the small ones, the mid-sized ones. He won the big ones, the urban centers. But um, when you run a campaign that's focused on urban centers and uh, when, when your base is, you know, urban liberals, then, yeah, you're probably not going to do well in rural communities unless you find a way to connect with people. And, and that was not done. And again, I think there's plenty of analysis to continue here. But the bottom line is Hubble lost uh, counties that Democrats who ran for Congress, like Abby Finkenauer, Dave Lobsack, uh, Cindy Axney, those candidates won counties that he lost. And that right there made a difference more than anything. This is Ed Fallon, folks. Uh, thanking you for joining today's conversation on the Fallon Forum.